Hi. Good morning, Aletheia. My name is, in fact, David. I will be preaching this morning. Before we get started, I would like to dismiss the kids. So if you are a kid or have kids, feel free to send them to my right or the Aletheia Jr. You can't miss Dan waving. Um, he's a pretty tall guy. Feel free to send them there. Also, if you do not have a scripture journal, we would love to give that to you here at Aletheia. We value God's word and we would love to get this in your hands. It's a great tool. It has James on one side and then a little space for you to take notes throughout. So if you would like one, just raise your hand. Someone will get one to you. Like I said, my name is David Dominguez. I'm one of the deacons here at Aletheia Church. And as always, I'm always very thankful for this opportunity. I, I think the elders here at Aletheia Church do a great job of not just putting a slogan at, at a church that we engage, equip, and power, but actually giving us opportunities to, to use our gifts. Um, so I'm always thankful for that. And before we get into the text this morning, I wanted to start off by giving you guys a little bit of my family history. I promise it's going to make sense once we get to the text, but I'll start with the fact that I was born in Cuba. So I was born in Cuba, my father and my grandfather, yes, Gabe, also a fellow Cuban. Uh, my father and my grandfather were both pastors in Cuba. And my grandfather was actually a pastor during this time in Cuba where the communist regime threw pastors into prison. And so their thought process was, well, if we take away the church leaders, the churches are just gonna cease to be. And now, this was a very difficult time for all of these pastors, but I think specifically for my grandfather, because obviously he was having to be away from his family, his church. My dad had just been born, so he was away from his firstborn son, missing a lot of milestones and time that he wanted to spend with him. Basically, a lot of my dad's first interactions with uh, my grandfather was visiting him in, in prison. And so this was just a very difficult time for him and for all these pastors and for the church in Cuba. And what the Cuban government actually eventually found out was that taking away the pastors did not cause the churches to cease to be, but instead it caused the Cuban church to grow. As now individuals who before were maybe not serving in leadership positions took more responsibility and filled gaps where needs arose. And when I talked to my grandfather about this time, it is so clear that this was a very difficult time in his life and that he wouldn't necessarily wish that upon anybody. But at the same time, he can't stop raving and how proud he is and was of his congregation who stood up and stepped up in the midst of difficult times. They served and loved one another well, even in the midst of such oppression. Now, I share this story today because the passage that we are going to be talking about is one of encouragement to endure and to be patient in the midst of trials, such as the one that the Cuban church had to endure. And if you've been here with us while we've been walking through the book of James, then you know that we've been going through this book that's, that's it, it tackles a lot of big theological themes, but at the end of the day, it's a very practical book, right? And today's, today's section of the letter is no exception. You know, we'll be talking about the practical reality in a Christian's life, which is that we have to, we are called to wait and to be patient and we, are, and, and we are called to do that well in a very specific manner. So we'll, we'll see that today in the midst of trials. Now, before we get into verses 7 through 12, which is what we're talking about today, I want to highlight something that Isaiah spoke about last week, okay? Because I think it's worth it. 
immediately before this section, immediately before verses 7 through 12, we saw that James had just finished passing judgment on the rich who were oppressing others, right? And it is with that context in mind that we need to read and understand the instructions for patience and perseverance and endurance that we get in verses 7 through 12. You see, James's encouragement is to those who are experiencing suffering and oppression as believers. This is different from one just, you know, reaping or uh, reaping what you sow by making unwise decisions. And I want to clarify this because it can be really easy to read today's passage and to weaponize it to force those whom you are oppressing or causing suffering to, to just have to endure it. The prior verses, which Isaiah already addressed, and he did a great job of that, make it clear that to those who are oppressing others and causing suffering to others, the call is for them to repent and that there is judgment coming to them. In today's sermon, our focus will be on our call as believers to patiently endure during difficult times. Having said that, the title of my sermon is Patient Endurance, and it's just going to have three points. The first is that hope is what produces patience. The second is that we remember examples of patience. And lastly, that patience produces change. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the great hope that we have in you, that you will return, that you will return for your church. I pray that these words can be meaningful to us today and that we can leave here encouraged and hopeful of what is to come. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, so we just read verses seven through 12, and I think right off the bat, James makes it so clear that he wants to set this foundation as to why we wait, why he calls us to wait and be patient repeatedly through the text, but he always connects it to something, and that is the coming of Jesus, the fact that Jesus will return. Look at in verse seven when he says, be patient therefore brothers, what does he attach that to? Until the coming of the Lord. He does the same thing in verse eight. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I mean, even in verse nine, when he's given us practical examples of what this looks like and tells us to not grumble against one another, he bases it on the fact that the judge is standing at the door. Language very much depicting the fact that Jesus will return and will judge and make all things right. And so what he wants us to get across right off the bat is that if we are to be patient well as believers, it is because we trust God's judgment and we trust of we have trust in his promise that he will return. And, and, and this is the only, with this in sight, is the only way that patience and waiting makes sense. Now, I wanted to give a, a practical example for us to understand this, right? Like that waiting and patience only makes sense if we truly believe and we know that Jesus is coming back. So for those of you who don't know, I work at a hospital, right? So I'm an occupational therapist. So I work with patients every single day. And we have a system in place where I can call for help if things go wrong, right? Like I can call for a code. And when I call for a code, I expect nurses and doctors to show up to help me. So most of the time, my job, if something goes wrong, is to get my patients in a safe position, whether it's sitting in their chair or back into bed, and I call for help and I just wait. Now, me waiting only makes sense in light of two things. One, like I said, I actually know that people will show up who can help. 
And two, that I actually know that those people who are showing up can do something to change the situation, right? And so James is making the same connection. He is telling us that waiting and enduring difficulties will only make sense in light of the reality that one, Jesus is coming back, and two, that he is the one who can actually change things. He is the one who can actually mend what is broken. And so he's doing this while, while, while playing a balancing act, right? He wants us to focus on the fact that Jesus is going to return without diminishing the difficulties and oppression that this congregation is going through, right? I, I, that's why I keep pointing back to Isaiah's sermon. And if you didn't hear Isaiah's sermon, you should go back and listen to it because James is taking very seriously what this church is going through and giving them hope not just to endure, but also that all things will be made right and that judgment is actually coming. And we as Christians have to do that. We have to live in this balance of not being blind to our suffering, but also not losing focus on our future hope in Jesus Christ, right? And, and I know this has to be something that I feel like there's some sermons where you're like, maybe somebody in the, in the, in the audience is going to be like, no, that's not really like something that I, that, that, that I need to hear, right? But like, if you live on this earth, you are suffering. There's, there's something going on. You either are or will undergo something that's going to be difficult in your life. You're going to have to experience suffering. That, that is not what sets us apart, right? Like some people think that, oh, if I come to Jesus and I become a Christian, then my life's going to be all like butterflies and roses, right? And it's like, dude, you really don't want to read the Bible. Like a lot of the people who followed Jesus and, 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 and did everything that God asked them to do endured a lot of difficulties. We're going to get to some of those examples later. In fact, even our, our Savior, who we call teacher and who we follow, right, he had to endure quite a bit. So what sets us apart as Christians is not that we're not going to have to undergo difficulties on this earth. In fact, that's just status quo in this broken, sinful world. What sets us apart as Christians is how we navigate those difficult circumstances. And Paul testifies of this in, in 2 Timothy 1, uh, verse 12. And, and I will remind you, he is writing this as he is imprisoned, facing death. And he says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard me until the day, until that day, to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. In other words, we endure because we know in whom we have put our trust and that is in Jesus. He is actually able to change. He is actually able to change our situation. And I love that right away, like right off the bat, this text just confronts us with the gospel, right? Because he's like, I understand you guys are going through oppression. I understand you guys are going through a difficult time, but I can't promise you that things are going to get better here on earth, right? Like he's like, I, I can't make that promise. They might, but they also might just get worse. And he's saying, I can't promise things will get better if your hope is not in Jesus. And I, I can't stress this enough. If this morning, while we're going through this sermon and this passage, you're meditating and you're thinking, and you're like, yeah, that's just not, when, when I'm going through difficult times, that's just not where my trust is. My hope is not in, in the fact that Jesus is, is coming back. My hope is not in Jesus. And I would encourage you, 
to come speak to somebody, whether it's the elders or me or anybody else you trust here at church. We would love to talk to you about that. And church, if this morning you are saying yes and amen, I'm, I'm suffering, I'm going through a lot right now, David, but I know that my trust is in Jesus, then I can promise you that your future hope and glory is greater than anything this world can throw at you because Jesus is compassionate and merciful and he will return for his bride, the church, and what awaits us is eternity with him. All right, so he establishes the foundation for everything else we're gonna talk about, right? Like that our hope is what produces patience, what allows us to endure in the midst of difficulties. And then he goes on to give a lot of practical examples. So we're gonna run through them one at a time. The first example that he gives is that of farmers, right? So look at what he says. See how, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And so James is trying to make a connection here between of how farmers wait for crop and how we wait for Jesus to come back, right? And so let's think a little bit deeper about the, this farmer, right? The farmer waits uh, on the rain and the seeds to grow, and he waits because he knows two things are happening. One, he knows that fruit will eventually appear, right? Like throughout time, he's de developed this system. Fruit will appear. And two, he understands that underground, there is a lot of things that are changing and happening that he can't quite see yet, okay? And so in the same way, James is making this connection with us and telling us that we are, to, we are enduring and awaiting because one, we know that Jesus will appear, that fruit will appear, right? But also because we understand that while we are waiting for Jesus to come back, there is real change undergoing within us that maybe we can't fully see or fully explain, but we know we are being changed and transformed even in the midst of our waiting. In other words, we wait not just to receive something, but also because of what we are becoming while we wait. You see, God uses our waiting to transform us into the image of his son. And James is trying to, trying to say, like, farmers understand this. Do you guys understand this? But he doesn't stop there. He gives us two more examples. He gives us the example of the prophets and of Jeremiah. Uh, of Jeremiah is the prophet that I'm going to talk about, but the example is the prophets, and he then gives us Job. Both J names kind of trick me up. So look at what he says in verse 10. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so I want to highlight two terms there, blessed and steadfast, because both of those are kind of attributed to, to Job and the prophets. But I'm going to talk about a specific prophet first, and then we'll go back to definitions, because I think it will make a lot more sense once we see um, the examples that he gives fleshed out a little bit. So Let's talk about the prophets. I, I chose to specifically talk about Jeremiah as an example, but you could obviously do this with any of the prophets. So think about Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah suffered a lot, 
in his life. If you haven't read the book of Jeremiah, I encourage you to do so. Right off the bat, something that stands out in the book of Jeremiah is like, I want to say at least six or seven times, he, he gets told that he's going to go preach to people who are just not going to listen to him. So like right off the bat, God's like, you're going to go listen, you're going to go talk to them, and they're just not going to listen. You're going to speak, and they're not going to listen to you. So rejection was promised up front to Jeremiah. So he endures rejection, but that's, that's not all that he endures. He endures mistreatment. I mean, he gets beaten and put in the stocks. Other priests and prophets call for his death sentence. That's always great when like your coworkers want you dead. Um, the, king, the king actually burns his scroll when he sees what Jeremiah is writing. Not great. The king's very powerful in that time. And ultimately, he gets left to die in the mud. They literally, what they do is they put him at the bottom of an empty well, and they just leave him there to die. Right? So Jeremiah kind of goes through quite a bit. And what is his example to us? He kept preaching, even when he was promised that he would be rejected. And we're like, why, why would he do that? Why would he endure all of these things and still do what he was called to do? Well, because one, God had given him a mission. And because Jeremiah knew that God had promised redemption for Israel. And in the same way, James is telling us that we can do the same. We too can endure difficulty and trust God's promise of redemption. And now let's, let's kind of look at those two terms, blessed and steadfast, and see how Jeremiah, the example of Jeremiah exemplifies that. So to kind of tie in uh, more context, we, we've been talking about how the book of James is basically taking the blueprint from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount and fleshing that out a little bit for us. So in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus kind of gives a little bit more context regarding the, the prophets. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So interesting, why do the prophets and Job get called blessed? It seems like they go through quite a lot of things that most of us wouldn't call blessings on a day-to-day basis. And what I want to make clear is that the term blessed here has nothing to do with the prophets or Job's earthly circumstances, okay? The term blessed refers to the state of their relationship with God. The prophets, along with Job, are in right standing with God. So when we say that as Christians, we can too be blessed, we're not saying that we're going to go through life without experiencing difficulty, without suffering, without having to experience sorrow and sadness. But what we are saying is that our trust is in Jesus and that our relationship with God has been mended and that there is nothing that we can undergo in this world that can change that. That is what James wants us to grasp and hold onto. We too can claim to be blessed. And then what about the term steadfast? So the the working definition I have of steadfast or steadfastness as is used later to describe Job is remaining obedient to God in the midst of trials and difficulty. Right, and so when we read that definition and we just talked about Jeremiah, you're like, okay, that makes a lot of sense, right? Like that's why he's called, that, that we're told that he's steadfast. 
Because Jeremiah, like we said, remained obedient to God even in the midst of rejection and mistreatment. And we said that he was able to do that because ultimately he trusts God and his redemptive plan for Israel, even though he wasn't quite able to see it all play out, right? Like Jeremiah wasn't able to see everything that we now get the privilege to look back to and see, but yet he still trusted God. And what's really interesting is this term uh, steadfast or steadfastness is used already previously in this letter of James. We, we heard it right off the bat in chapter one. In chapter one, verses two through four, look what James tells us about uh, being steadfast. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and lest let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, James is trying to encourage us and to remind us that even in the midst of our struggle, God is at work. And much like Joseph, right, we too can say, what you have meant for evil, the Lord has used for good. And so, like, think about the story of Joseph for a second, right? His brothers get rid of him, right? They sell him off to be a slave. He goes to Egypt. He's, like, working his way up in this guy's house. Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with him. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Runs away. She goes and says, oh, he tried to take advantage of me, so he gets put in prison. Eventually, through interpreting some dreams, he gets out of prison. He eventually works his way up, also through interpreting some dreams, to a very high, prominent position in Egypt. And... He says those words after he endures all of that, when his brothers are now here in front of him trying to get food because there's a famine in all the land and only Egypt had food. And, and look at, look at his, what he says to them completely in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And I want to highlight what I said at the very beginning again, Joseph is not glorifying evil deeds. What Joseph is saying in that verse is not, I think more people should be sold into slavery by their brothers. That is not what he is trying to say in the same way that what James is trying to say is, I think more churches should be oppressed. He already very clearly depicted the judgment that is coming to the oppressors and the call to repentance to them in the same way that we could say, Joseph's brothers needed to repent about some things, right? What Joseph is making clear is the Christian hope of God's sovereignty and providence, even in the midst of our broken world. So he gives us the example of the prophets, gives us the example of farmers, and then he gives us the example of Job, which when I was first preparing for this sermon, I was like, dude, using the book of Job as like an encouragement genre of book of the Bible is just like not... Not the first book that came to mind for me. I was like, you had the Psalms right there. Um, but he chooses Job. And again, as I was thinking, I was like, man, I don't think Job was like very good at waiting. I, don't, I just don't think he was very like patient. And I think the more I studied the book of Job, I was like, oh my gosh, James is a genius. This is why he chooses the book of Job. He's like, because he's expecting people who are going to read his letter to come up with these same objections, right? They're gonna be like, oh, he gave the example of the prophets. Like the prophets were kind of a big deal. I'm a normal Christian. I can't be patient and endure like they did. 
I, I would, I struggle to trust God. And he's like, oh man, you really should look at the book of Job. It's like, oh no, like I know the prophets went through a lot, but like they haven't gone through like what I have experienced. And he's like, oh man, you should really, really take a look at the book of Job. And so let's think of, of the story of Job a little bit. We're not going to get too in depth with it. But what happens to Job, right? The devil comes in, takes everything away from Job. And right off the bat, Job still says, he praises God. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Like he's like doing great so far. Then the devil comes, takes away his health, strategically leaves his nagging wife, which I think is a great power play by the devil there. And then you sprinkle in like three friends who are like trying to help, but not doing a great job about it. And what you get is like this perfect storm of misery, right? To the point where his wife is literally like, dude, you need to just like curse, curse God and die. Like not a great, great setup for Job. But ultimately, what the story of Job is about is God meeting Job in the middle of his brokenness. And he doesn't just meet Job and say like, hey, everything you've been doing is great, like pat him on the back. No, he corrects Job. But ultimately what he does is he restores Job. And we all like to focus, and rightfully so, on the fact that God restores Job's earthly possessions as well. But God meets Job and restores him and restores his heart. He changes who Job is. You see, it was very clear that even in the midst of his questioning and his grumbling and everything that Job went through, he never forsaked the Lord. In, in chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, this is before God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, by the way, which I think is, is worth noting. Look at what Job says in the midst of all this tragedy. He says, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. And when I read that, I just see so much parallel with what we get at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22. It's almost like, it's almost like Job is, is, is seeing not just the, the fact that there is resurrection, but, but seeing the resurrected Jesus. And these, and I, like I said, Job just never abandons his faith, instead clings to God and continues to hope in him. And so we can say with our working definition of steadfastness that ultimately Job remains obedient to God even in the midst of trial and difficulty. Now, we might ask ourselves, did he do it perfectly? No. Did he maybe say some things that he eventually was like, yeah, I regret saying that? Absolutely. Right after God appears to him out of the whirlwind, what's the first thing that Job does? He repents, right? Because he's like, oh, oh, clearly, I was speaking of things I had no idea about what I was saying, right? And so in the same way, we too can expect to wait and endure, not perfectly, willing to repent and fall in, before God in his, his mercy and compassion just as Job did. You see, all of these examples that James is giving us do not deliver us from difficulty. 
right? They don't, they don't make bad things just not happen anymore. But what they do and what they're meant to do is to encourage us to remain steadfast just like these individuals. And I think, although James doesn't address this in this specific text, we can talk about one more example, right? Like, there's no better example of endurance and perseverance than Jesus, right? Who endured the wrath meant for us so that we could be called blessed children of God. Look at how Hebrews uh, talks about this in Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." I mean, what better encouragement can we get than the fact that our Savior also endured? He, even, even this he modeled perfectly for us. He endured so that we would not grow weary. Jesus is our only hope in the midst of trials and tribulations. That is what James wants this church to understand. That is what James wants us to understand. But again, now that he has this all fleshed out for them, like typical James, he's like, all right, this is a reality. And if you claim that you're grasping onto this as your reality and your hope, then this has to change the way you interact with one another in the midst of these difficult times, right? So he gives them two very big practical things that they can do to endure together well. And now this is not an exhaustive list, right? There's a lot more that can be said about how to do this well but we're gonna address the two specific examples that he gives. And what James is trying to get at is sometimes we see the word patience and we automatically think that that means passivity. And what James wants to make clear to us is that our patience and trust in God during difficult times is shown by how we treat and relate with one another, okay? So the first, the first thing he tells them not to do is to not grumble against one another. And I already highlighted how he said, he based that on the fact that the judge is standing at the door. And I think that is pointing to the fact that Jesus is coming back, which is a very big theme in this section. He's trying to ground everything on that hope of Jesus and his return. But I think he's also trying to get them to understand that we as Christians are expecting Jesus to come back, right? We expect him to come back and we expect him to show us what? Mercy and compassion right? And he's saying, if you're waiting for Jesus to come back and show you mercy and compassion, what you need to be doing to your brothers and sisters around you in the midst of this oppression is showing them mercy and compassion. You know how you don't do that? You don't do that by grumbling against one another. And so that is the negative command that he gives. He says, stop that. Do not, there's no need to be tearing each other down. What you actually need to be doing is grabbing onto each other and being there for one another, and again, we're, like, just think about difficult times that you've gone through and like the high stress situations that you've been in. It's like our natural default to just like get upset and like lash out and tear one another down, right? Like that's just like our natural default position. 
But James is trying to get us to understand that as believers, we should be different. And I don't want to focus so much on his negative command to not grumble, because that's like a given. Like you read this passage and you leave here and you're like, okay, check, I shouldn't grumble. Like very clearly, like he's not, he's saying the judge is going to come and like, like very much like laying the law, like I, I need to stop doing that. But instead, what should replace that is we should be encouraging one another. Look at what 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And then in Ephesians 4, I'm going to read verses 29 and 32, but uh, I think it's all going to come up on the screen. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. And then verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is, a, this is a constant theme in scripture. We are expecting Jesus to return. We are expecting Jesus to show us compassion and mercy. We should be showing that to our brothers and sisters, especially in the midst of difficult times such as oppression. And then he tells them in the very last verse, which almost kind of seems, seems a little bit out of place. There's a lot of like fun debate and talk about that. I'm not going to get into that tonight. Um, but verse, verse 12 says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And again, a lot can be said about oaths, this text. Jesus also talks about oaths on the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of verses regarding oaths in the Old Testament. Feel free to do a nice little Bible study when you get home about that. But what I am going to focus on is the practical call and benefit of what James is asking this church to do. And that is within the, the context of enduring suffering well together. And what James wants to make it clear to them is that you should all be Christians full of integrity, okay? That is, your speech should be received at face value on the, based on the character of your heart and not because you attach an oath to it. So when you tell someone you're going to be there for them, you do it. And think about how practical this is in the time of oppression or suffering or just very like highly difficult times for someone to walk through. Integrity, by the way, the way, the way that I'm using that word here, what, what is integrity, right? Is, is doing the right thing in difficult times. Now, while you you, we can say that technically we can show integrity even when times aren't difficult. But I think James is trying to call out the fact that in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of suffering, that's when we truly see someone's integrity, what they do and what they say. And so, again, I have a lot of hospital examples. I'm sorry, I'm there like 40 hours a week and it consumes my mind sometimes. But think of the practical example of you being at the hospital with a family member that you love, right? Like integrity there, if you were like, oh, I want to help them. I am their brother and sister in Christ. I want to see what I can do for them, right? If you show up and you're talking to them and you're like, hey, how are things going? I just wanted to check in on you guys. Is there anything I can do to help? And they say, yeah, like actually there is. Integrity is whatever you say that you're going to do to help them, you do it, 
right? Or you're up front and say, I can't actually help with that, right? Like if you tell them, oh yeah, I can go pick up your kid from daycare and take him to their grandma's house. What you can't do is then just say, oh, actually, I, I, something came up. I got tickets to the greater basketball game, so I can't actually do that anymore. But like, think of how hurtful that would be in, that, in the middle of that situation. So as Christians, when we say, and this is very easy to just see with honesty, right? But I think integrity goes much deeper than just your words and what you say. It's in what you do, right? So in the same example, if you are there with your family member, day in, day out, 24 hours a day, helping them, taking care of them, you are demonstrating integrity as well, right? When you then tell your family member, hey, I love you, guess what you don't have to do? You don't have to swear by heaven. You don't have to swear by earth or by your mom or whatever you want to swear by because they know you do, because they see it in the way that you're caring for them. And that's what James is trying to get at with this church. This church is experiencing persecution and oppression. And what James wants them to understand is that they need to stop grumbling and alienating one another, but instead lock arms, be there for one another, and show that they care for one another in their actions, full of integrity, and not having to to swear by heaven or by earth for them to believe them. And so I think that those are practical things that when we're thinking through, like, how can I do this well? How can I walk through difficult times with others well? And how can I be prepared to walk through those same circumstances myself? And I think what James makes very clear is that that is only possible if we are trusting God in the midst of our difficulty. We're trusting his promises to return. If we're trusting that when he does return, he will have compassion and mercy for us, even for the times where we have maybe not waited very patiently or very well. And it should cause us to reflect, you know, like, am I one of these people that James is talking to? Am I, am I normally grumbling or am I seeking to lock arms with others who are in need Am I encouraging others with my words or am I tearing them down? Am I displaying integrity in my life, in my words, or are they just meaningless and not trustworthy? In conclusion, I'm gonna try to summarize all of this up. I would say that in the midst of our pain and suffering, we call on the Lord and we wait and endure because of our future hope and trust in his promises that Jesus will return and that we will spend eternity worshiping him. In the midst of our lives in this broken world, God is at work forming you into the character of his son and turning what was meant for evil for good. Patience does not mean passivity. We serve others. We love them well, full of integrity with our words and actions. And we look forward to eternity. We are able to patiently wait because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And I want us to take some time now to to meditate as I read Revelation 22, verses three through seven. Take some time to just deeply look forward to our blessed hope. And again, I, I know I said this earlier, but if this is not your hope, if while, you're t- while, while we've been talking here, you're like, that's just not 
That's just not where my hope is placed right now. Please, I beg and implore you that you don't leave here today without changing that. Feel free to find me after the service, any of the elders, maybe somebody who you came here with that you trust. Please don't leave here without talking to someone about this. But as of right now, I'm gonna read Revelation 22, verses three through seven. I would, I would invite you to just bow your heads and close your eyes and kind of meditate through this as I do.